So I've been given the difficult task of introducing Marianne. Some of you all may be better uh, than myself. But as we all know, Marianne uh, Williamson is an internationally acclaimed spiritual author and lecturer. And we have seen her on such television programs as Oprah and Larry King and Good Morning America. Six of her 11 published books have been New York Times bestsellers. Four of these have been number one um, New York Times bestsellers. Um, in 1989, she founded the Pro Project Angel Food, a Meals on Wheels program that serves homebound people with AIDS living in Los Angeles. Today, the Project Angel Food serves more than 1,000 people daily. Marianne also is the co-founder of Peace Alliance, and she serves on the board of directors for Results Organization, where I met her. So there's a lot of things that I can read about Marianne, but it's really good to say the things that you know about someone. As I said, when I asked her if you would come to New, to New England, she immediately looked at me and said, yes, I will come. When we were talking about the intention of the program tonight and what we wanted to carry into this space, she called me one day and she said, Kristen, I spoke to my daughter and a good friend, but I also want your opinion as well. I also had the good fortune to talk to her about what I had been doing with my life, and immediately when I returned from DC, Marianne sends me a book. So when I first became a student at um, HDS, one of the first classes we had to take was theories and methods. And our professor, Charles Hallisey, said, who are we when we study religion? And this question I have been contemplating my entire time here. But this I know for sure. If I can co convey the level of compassion and kindness and thoughtfulness and openness that I have personally experienced through Mary Ann Williamson, I know that I'm doing okay. So without further ado, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. It's an absolute honor to be here. I met Kristen, as she said, at a results conference which is an organization, a citizen's lobby, that works to end the worst ravages of hunger and poverty throughout the world. But when she told me she was a divinity student, the combination of being a divinity student and her being at, um, at results is what uh, compelled me, made me want to ask her questions about herself, because I feel very strongly that the interface of spirituality and politics is an extraordinary vortex, always has been on the planet, and continues to be so, uh, to speak into that listening and that conversation is exciting for me because I feel that it, uh, there is so much power there. The fact that we are taking on the topic, as per Kristen's uh, request, that we do take on the larger spiritual conversation in the context of politics and consciousness and the evolution of our country. Um, that being said, let's start with a little bit of history, if we may. Um, in sometime in the 1700s, uh, William Penn was standing on the street in London and a carriage came by. And the carriage was holding an aristocrat. And at that time, if you were an English citizen and you were not an aristocrat, if an aristocrat walked by or if an aristocrat's carriage came by, you were meant to bow. 
and William Penn refused to bow. So a guard with a sword took the sword out and said, didn't you see that that was an aristocrat's carriage? Why didn't you bow? And William Penn said, my religion forbids me. My religion forbids any man to bow before another man. And William Penn was a Quaker. And William Penn kept saying things like this. And George III, in his inimitable stupidity, thought that the way to get rid of William Penn, get him out of his hair, just give him some land over in America. And that, of course, became Pennsylvania. And the Quaker vision of things was very central to the founding of American democracy, based at its, as it is on the notion that there is an inner light. Now, the author Charlene Spratnak has an interesting term. She calls it the non-rationals. Not the irrationals, but the non-rational. Spiritual power is non-rational. It is ultimately the most rational perspective. It restores reason and not the other way around. But it is non-rational. So the Quakers were extremely important in the foundational philosophy of what would become American democracy. Then many of the women who were the heads of the suffragette movement, much later, of course, were also Quakers. And then, of course, the civil rights movement in the United States. Uh, Dr. King, obviously a preacher from Atlanta, the Southern Christian Leadership uh, Conference. So the, I, the power of spiritual principle and the meaning, the foundational uh, uh, power of spiritual principle has actually been at the core of all the great social justice movements since the beginning of our time. Now, once American democracy was founded, we have in our DNA, from the very beginnings, a very unique and horrifyingly fascinating juxtaposition of genius and brutality. If you look at the founders themselves, clearly we're talking some genius here. But we're also talking about a group of men, all of whom were committing treason by signing the Declaration of Independence, and who we can look to with gratitude for having bequeathed to us principles, the founding principles of our country, because of which we live lives of opportunity that absolutely would not have been possible. At the same time, we know how many of them were themselves slave owners. So we cannot look to these people and look to the lives that they embodied and the things that they demonstrated in their lives and applaud. But ironically enough, at the same time, we can be extremely grateful for those foundational principles. Now, when it comes to consciousness, the idea here is that just as individuals move through developmental stages, so do countries. Because all that a collective is, is a group of individuals. And so we all have within us the angels of our better nature, and we all have within us what you might call the shadow self. Now, the United States is not a particle, it's a wave. And so we have moved through time from our very beginning, our DNA carrying with it this, on one hand, establishment and dedication to the most amazing and brilliant principles ever encoded into the founding of a country ever, juxtaposed with, the, with slavery that was there from the beginning, and we could talk details, and we could talk Jefferson, and all, all that, but we, that fact remains the bottom line, and also the genocide of Native American peoples. 
So you start with two extraordinarily brutal demonstrations of national life that were with us from the beginning, juxtaposed with these extraordinarily brilliant principles. What America has been and continues to be to this day is a process by which generation after generation, there were those who stood for, and sometimes to great sacrifice, sometimes the greatest sacrifice, making, taking a stand for the establishment and the expansion of the principles on which we purport to stand. And there have been, in every generation, and continues to be to this day, those who stand politically, socially, economically, and so forth, actually represents a constriction and a withdrawal of our national commitment and our resources from the manifestation of those principles. So we start with that as context, that this is a journey that America has been on. We have tended to self-correct. It's an open question what will happen now. But until this time, we have tended to self-correct. We had slavery, obviously. Then we abolished slavery. Women did not have the right to vote. Then we, we gave women the right to vote. There was the horrifying establishment of white supremacy in the American South after the Civil War. And then civil rights legislation was passed. Once again, I want to point out the role that spiritual principle played in the lives of the leaders of all of those movements, some of the main leaders of all of those movements. And also to point out, and this is why I think it's a particularly critical time in which we live. You know, when Martin Luther King used to quote the line that the arc of justice is long, the, arc of, the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. John Adams said that he always hoped that July 4th would be a revisiting of the first principles of the United States. There was a consensus among Americans from the earliest beginnings, enough of them, that we were doing what we could to embody our first principles. Given that, it became enough of a consensus that therefore we should abolish slavery. Therefore, women should have a right to vote. Therefore, civil rights legislation to be passed, and I believe, and therefore, gays should be able to marry. So I think it's very important for us to have, in order to have a sophisticated conversation, I think in talking about a people, it's as important as when talking about individuals. We haven't done everything wrong, and we haven't done everything right. Both are true. A lot of our popular dialogue about politics in America is very simplistic. There are those who will only talk about what we did right with a complete denial about what we have done and are doing wrong. And there are those who will only talk about what we've done wrong with complete denial and a refusal to look at where we've gotten it right. Without the context of the realization that both exist and have existed, you can't get into the deeper understanding that I think is necessary in order for us to move forward from the most powerful place. Now, the reason we're living, I believe, in critically dangerous times is largely because of the failure of the American educational system. I would wager, uh, I would at least submit, that the majority of Americans don't even know what the goal's supposed to be at this point. And so I just want to take a moment ourselves to revisit those first principles. 
first four majorly established in the Constitution of the United States, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, and then the last one is basically from Abraham Lincoln, the Gettysburg Address. Number one, now all of these are the supposed tos. All of these are the principles on which we purport to stand. But it's important. I remember saying to a, to a, to a friend of mine once, why don't kids say the Pledge of Allegiance in school anymore? I remember we used to say Pledge of Allegiance in one nation under God uh, with freedom and justice for all, liberty and justice for all. And I remember my friend said, well, fuck that shit, man, because we don't have freedom and, and liberty for all. And, and, I thought, <laughs> and I thought, but wait a minute. The fact that as a child I put my hand in front of my heart is what taught me we're supposed to. And if I hadn't pledged allegiance to that idea, I wouldn't get so upset when I see it not happening. So it was important to me as a child that I taught that was taught that that's what's supposed to happen here. Right? Okay, number one, equality under the law. That this is to be a country. We can talk about the irony of the men who signed the declaration establishing that who they themselves were slave owners. It, it, it almost boggles the mind. Once again, however, we're talking the principle that we, every citizen would be treated equally under the law. We can say, well, the only men, white men, property owners, blah, blah, blah. Once again, let's stay with the principle that we would be treated equally before the law. Number two, e pluribus unum, which is a big one. You, you can look at any major political, social, or economic issue happening in the United States today and talk of at, at least one of these principles blows it open in terms of a higher level of understanding. E pluribus unum is an interesting one. E pluribus, unum, e pluribus unum out of many one, which is that we are supposed to, once again, but the are supposed to is a big deal if you have allegiance to that in your mind and heart. A country where we are many cultures, many ethnicities, with fealty to these same common principles. So you're, theoretically, that you can be anything you want to be, but there are certain things on which we agree to agree. Number three, that the government, this is an extremely important issue, and as hot today as ever in our history, that the government is meant to be a brokering agent. It's to be a brokering agent between the protection of individual liberty on one hand and the concern for the common good on the other hand. Number four, religious liberty that you can believe in any god, as Thomas Jefferson said, whether a man believes in 20 gods or no gods, neither picks my pocket nor breaks my leg. Theoretically, it's not supposed to matter. You believe in this god or that god, you know. We, I was once at uh, Glastonbury Cathedral in England, and um, I, I used to lead these metaphysical trips to various places, Egypt, uh, sad to say, I led quite a few, and, Quite sad to say those days seem to be over that I would do that, but this one was to the Celtic. Were you there, Karen? I, were you on that trip? And do you remember, wasn't it Glastonbury at the ruins where we sat down to do a ritual and to say a prayer and someone came out and told us to stop? I thought that was interesting. That could not have happened here. You know, it's interesting. So England is a place where sometimes you, you think you're more the same than you, you actually are when you go through certain experiences. And then the last one, of course, established uh, not in the Constitution, but the words of, of uh, Abraham Lincoln, of the people, by the people, for the people. That a government of the people, by the people, and for the people shall not perish from the earth. Well, we are living at a time where what we have done, like I said, individuals go through developmental stages, so do whole groups of people. So when you look at what has happened in the United States today, from the perspective of consciousness, we have reverted 
to an aristocratic condition. What has happened in the United States was that we expanded into an institutional reality that we did not energetically expand to inhabit in full. You know, in the Jewish tradition, it is said that every generation must rediscover God for itself. And that is true as well with American democracy. You cannot bequeath exceptionalism. You cannot bequeath the spirit of democracy. Every generation must embody it for itself or else, the, because one link in the chain breaks and the whole chain breaks. So first of all, there's a failure to even educate our children. It is not an accident that civics is hardly been taught to many American children today. This is not an accident. And it is not an accident that Thomas Jefferson said that we needed a free press as well as public education in order to have a free democratic society, free press for obvious reasons, but free public education because he said that an uneducated people would not have the critical thought processes necessary in order to govern a nation. Now, the repudiation of an aristocracy was radical then and it is radical now. And that's what I'd like to talk about. I'd like to talk about the radicalism of democracy. And there had been democracies before, but never a, democracy, a country established as one. So you have the establishment of a country, the, the founding of which was a direct repudiation of the ancient regime, which was an aristocratic system. Once again, it is to be noted that, the, you know, if, if these guys, have, if, if the war had been lost, if the war for American independence had been lost, these guys wouldn't have just been killed. They would have been drawn and quartered, which is why you have your constitutional injunction against cruel and unusual punishment. That means you're, you're held upside down, you are literally quartered with a sword, and your insides are taken out and burned in front of you, and that's what you experience the last few moments of your life. Okay? John Hancock, one of the fascinating things about, we all know the, the large, uh, the large uh, signature of John Hancock. Well, John Hancock had been making a lot of noise and been a real thorn in the side of George III for a long time. And at one point, George III had sent his, uh, his men to say to John Hancock, look, here's a lot of money, here's a lot of land, just be quiet. And that really angered John Hancock. And so when he signed the Declaration of Independence, he wanted it to be really big to make sure that George III saw, I'm signing this. Okay? Now, this was a direct repudiation of an ancient regime. The ancient regime, the aristocratic notion being that the major resources of a country, that the social system was established, whereby a small group of people, for whatever reason, were deemed entitled to the primary resources of the country. That had to do with blood lineage, of course. And everybody else was little more, if not actually, their serfs. Nobody else could be educated. Nobody else could, be, uh, could, could have any hope of getting anywhere in life other than the station and the class to which they were already assigned. This had been the case for generations, and it wasn't going anywhere. With the establishment of American democracy, the idea was a complete reversal, a complete repudiation of the aristocratic condition. Once again, by aristocrats, but once again, that irony is understood here, right? So the notion here was that, you know, I once heard Muhammad Yunus talking about the, deep, the very poor, and he likened the bottom billion, the billion people who live on this planet on $1.25 and less a day. Then you got above that, of course, another billion who live on less than $2 a day. And Muhammad Yunus likened them to bonsai trees. He said, a bonsai tree has everything that any other tree has. It's just that the confines are small. 
so it can't get any bigger. He said, that's the poor. So the idea of the original idea philosophically, spiritually, was not just radical in terms of the political evolution of the human race, but in terms of the spiritual, the moral evolution of the human race, that we would, to the best of our ability, create a society in which everybody possible would have a chance to spread their wings. That everybody possible would have the opportunity to become as big a tree as they wished. It was a radical notion. It is a radical notion. It was never perfected. So we need to not be whining about that part of it. No generation ever established it perfectly. Nobody ever did. And some generations are known for having taken extraordinary measures, made extraordinary sacrifices, in order that in their day, the, the process could be furthered. The last thing we need is for the people whose job it is to take stewardship, which is what every generation is. We are stewards of democracy. We are stewards of this experiment. We are stewards of this process. The last thing we need is for so many of the people who should be making the fullest efforts to be so lured into cynicism and whining and negativity about it, which is nothing more than an excuse to not help. That, in fact, we're not yet creating the interruptive and disruptive resonant field that we need in order to turn things around. Sometimes what happens when people, let's say, have lost 100 pounds. Let's say uh, somebody uh, lost 100 pounds and you, they look in the mirror, but they still think of themselves as fat, even though they're actually very skinny now. So what happened for us is we, we repudiated aristocracy, but it happened quickly in historical terms. And so what has happened, it's kind of like a, a piece of elastic. It was stretched out. And what has happened now, and there are a lot of reasons for it, a lot of reasons for it, but what has happened is that you no longer have a consensus of Americans who really get that aristocracy is wrong who really get that the whole point of this country is a repudiation of an aristocracy. And that's why when we use the word corporatocracy, actually we should use the word aristocracy. Because when you talk about oligarchy, or you talk about plutocracy, you talk about corporatocracy, the point is the main archetype inside it. That's what's so dangerous. That is what has revisited us. We have devolved. And so in a very real way, we are living in a devolutionary time in our history, which is why I said earlier, that really the question is out uh, what will happen now. It is not guaranteed to us. Uh, American democracy and the freedoms that are inherent here and the opportunities that are inherent uh, are not bequeathed. That you can't, we're not exceptional just because another generation was exceptional. Uh, the fact that our ideals are exceptional, there are, there are arguably countries who are living the exceptionalism of our ideal much more than we are right now. I think that's inarguable to most people on the planet. And life on Earth is not guaranteed either. Uh, we all learned when we were children uh, how evolution works. And when a species gets to the point where its behavioral patterns represent maladaptive uh, behavior, then one of two things is going to happen. If that maladaptive behavior continues, either the species will get ex go extinct or the species will uh, evolve. And when it evolves in another direction, it is always because of the presence of a mutation. And the mutation never represents the majority of the species. But the mutation, the behavior of the mutation, represents the only survivable option, basically. 
And so in the cases where the species does not go extinct, it is because enough descendants of the mutation survived and procreated, and thus the evolutionary process occurred. On the Earth today, it is, uh, I, I submit to you, and I don't think that there are many people who would argue with this at this point, we are displaying as a species behavior, collective behavioral patterns that are maladaptive for the survival of our species, quite simply. Uh, we are the only species known to systematically destroy its own habitat, and we simply fight too much. Uh, there are, one gentleman argued earlier today that he said the wolverines, uh, but maybe he's right about the wolverines, but other than that, we are the only species that <laughs> exhibits gratuitous cruelty. And we fight each other too much, and we are fighting each other now with weapons, responsible use of which, if you could even say that there's such a thing as responsible use of which, is so, out, is, is so far from our actual practices that the stress point on the planet, I remember years ago I went to, I think it's Wyoming, Some, forgive me, I get dyslexic about Wyoming and Idaho. Uh, one of them had huge fires in the 1980s. And this horrible conflagration that occurred in that state at that time actually changed the calculus of professional firefighting. Because what before that time, there is, there is a concept in professional firefighting called the acceptable burn. I live in California, so we know, unfortunately, a lot about fire, fire, fire right now, once again exacerbated by the drought, once again exacerbated by climate change, and so forth. Acceptable burn means where they do a calculus and they say, okay, our best way to deal with this one is to let it burn. What happened that particular summer in either White Idaho or Wyoming, I'm going to get things on Facebook and Twitter tonight, it was Idaho or Wyoming, whatever. Um, in one of them, I think it was Wyoming, was that there were too many otherwise considered acceptable burns too close together happening at the same time. And that's what made the whole thing blow up. That is what is happening on the planet today. You could talk about climate change. You could talk about terrorism. You could talk about economic injustice. You could talk about so many things that we're going through in this country. And you could talk about so many things we're going on on the planet. And say, we can handle this. The, the, the body, neither the body nor civilization, nor the psyche, evolved over thousands and in some cases millions of years without without developing a system within itself that enabled it to take a hit. And American democracy has taken some hits. But there comes a time if the body takes too many hits. Then the, I, re I remember hearing President Clinton talking about assault weapons and hearing him talk about emergency room doctors saying to him, if somebody comes in and there's a gunshot wound, in a lot of cases, we have a good chance of saving them. It's when it's been an assault weapon and there are 10 gunshot wounds where we don't have a, ch a chance. Are you with me? So what's happening on the planet today is, is a kind of whole systems breakdown that we've got on our hands. And it takes a whole systems response. If you look at someone like, if you look at a phenomenon like the Nazis, you look at the, uh, the Japanese uh, Imperial Army, World War II represented a cancer, but it was an operable cancer. It was uh, a cancer uh, which could be surgically removed. And it was brilliantly surgically removed. Today we have a cancer 
which has metastasized broadly, is wrapped around many health, otherwise healthy organs. Invasive measures, even when they have been tried, we could argue whether the invasion of Iraq could have or should have ever been seen as that, but even to whatever extent it was, giving George Bush and Dick Cheney a way benefit of the doubt, clearly did a little more than spread the cancer. So we now need a holistic perspective on our politics, just as we developed a holistic perspective in the healing of the body, that allopathic measures alone will not work, that we need to bring in the healing agents of the mind, the body, and the spirit. Now, with that, I'd like to talk for a moment about racial history in the United States. We already talked about the fact that we, slavery was there at the beginning, and not just southern states, some northern states had it as well. We talked about the fact that some founders, not all of them, uh, were slave owners. Uh, John Adams was very much here in Massachusetts, very much against slavery, uh, so they weren't all. But certainly that was here uh, from the beginning. With the Civil War, what you had was an allopathic treatment of the effect of a problem. Slavery was not a cause. Slavery is an effect. Racist thought is the cause. Uh, Carl Jung said, only spirit can cure spirit. Now, the allopathic treatment was huge. Let's not forget, 600,000 Americans died. You had 257,000 Americans died in World War II. You had something like 57, 56,000 died in Vietnam. 600,000 Americans died in the Civil War. And think how much smaller the population was at that time. So Emancipation Proclamation, Civil War, Constitutional Amendment, you eradicated the evil institution. No stroke of a presidential pin, no constitutional amendment, however, could eradicate the cause, could only eradicate the effect. Now, that generation should be deeply honored for the extraordinary sacrifice of that work. But it's like Martin Luther King would say later that the desegregation of the American South is the political externalization of the goal of the civil rights movement. The ultimate goal was the establishment of the beloved community. This was not just metaphor and pretty talk. And that, that issue in relate, relation to Martin Luther King, we can talk about that later if you like, his words were beautiful. And the beauty of his words are used year after year to de-juice and declaw one of the greatest uh, Americans. And that, that should be, every year when they say, in honor of Martin Luther King, we should do service. Uh, I, I, I have a lot to say about that, as you can imagine. We'll talk about that, but if, if you wish. But let's just go back to the racial history. When Abraham Lincoln said in the second inaugural, with malice towards none, with charity for all, that was extremely important because he was signaling how the South would be treated were he to, well, he had been elected a second time. He was signaling this is how we will treat the South. We will not treat them with malice. We will not treat them as a vanquished enemy. We will treat them as a family member who has come back home. The fact that a very short time after that, Lincoln was assassinated made a lot of difference. This, can, this is analogous to what happened after World War I. After World War I, the Allies said to Germany, basically, reparations are Deutschmark till we tell you to stop. It was an American president, interestingly enough, Woodrow Wilson, who tried his best, saying to the other Allies, bad idea. It was as true then as it is true today. 
large groups of vanquished people should be considered a national security threat. Large groups of desperate people are dangerous, okay? If you had not had that desperate condition, that desperate condition of the German people after World War I was a petri dish out of which uh, the emergence of Hitler could not even be seen in retrospect to be that surprising, okay? Similarly, after World War II, uh, excuse me, similarly after the Civil War, Lincoln died. And that's when the North, whose basic attitude towards the South was, my, I have to lose my son because you bastards had slaves? I didn't have slaves. Why did I, you know, they, they thought, both on the North and the South, that this was going to last for six weeks. So the North was so angry at the South. Then what you had, you had the federal troops who came in, uh, were sent down to the southern states. I think they stayed till 1880-something to make sure slavery itself was not established. But it almost didn't matter. Once again, the externalization didn't come back, but the carpetbaggers came down there. You already have a vanquished people. So who are they going to hate? They're going to hate the former slaves who they think of as you cause me all this misery. That's when you get the rising in that historical chapter of white supremacy. That's when, by the end of that century, you have your lynchings, the white supremacist laws, the founding of the John Burr Society, the founding of the Ku Klux Klan, and so forth. Once again, Martin Luther King then rising up to a suppression of the vote, the Jim Crow laws, and so forth. Martin Luther King making, obviously, extreme difference allopathically and internally, holistically. Uh, with the civil rights movement, but once again, the deeper, even though Martin Luther King spoke to it, Martin, uh, the, the idea of a spiritually infused political activism, first articulated by Mahatma Gandhi, he said the leader of the, of the Indian independence movement was a small, still voice within. And Martin Luther King, in describing Gandhi, said Gandhi was the first person in human history to take the love ethic of Jesus Christ. Now remember, Gandhi was a Hindu. He would not have called it the love ethic of Jesus Christ. Uh, Martin Luther King called it the love ethic of Jesus Christ. We would call it the love ethic at the heart of all the great religious teachings and, and secular teachings that are based on conscience. But what Martin Luther King said about Gandhi and what Martin Luther King then borrowed for application to the civil rights movement in the United States in the 60s was the idea that in, in the words of King, love could become not just a healer of interpersonal relationships, but a broad scale social force for Good. That Gandhi said love does not just heal relationships between two individuals, and or as we would even now say heal the body, but that can be used to heal political and social relationships as well. Two, three popes ago, John Paul, before he died, did some extraordinary apologizing on behalf of the Catholic Church. He apologized, for instance, to women for the Inquisition didn't get a lot of play. Well, you're, you're saying that, but actually I think it, there's a lot of cellular memory of the witch burnings, I think, and it's interesting to actually. And he used an extraordinary term. It was called purification of memory. He said, if you do not apologize for a wrong committed, then you will remain unconscious of the fact that you are repeating it. So because America never fully owned, and you can understand why the generation that has just fought the, the Civil War, we have done enough, we have given enough. You can understand some generations, but that doesn't give you a pass on doing the job that's your generations to do. Does that make sense? So what happened there, of course, is that much social, economic, political, educational policy has 
unfolded over the years, which is absolutely a legacy of slavery, which is essentially racist in nature. And one of the reasons that this continues is because all the cancer was not removed, because America has never fully atoned. And that's where spirituality comes in. Um, I'd, I'd like to read you uh, something, if I, if I can find it in here. Uh, Abraham Lincoln established, and you know, if you read, if you read uh, the second inaugural address, I mean, he, he called it, uh, Lincoln uh, talked about how um, he, he clearly saw um, the Civil War as our, our punishment, uh, the bloodletting that was necessary for the sin of slavery. There's no doubt about it. And then, ironically enough, uh, Jefferson said, I tremble for my country when I consider God is just and that his justice shall not sleep forever. If you have any view of of the, the, the principle of consciousness and spirituality, which in the East is called karma and the West called cause and effect, then you, you know there will be an effect. And then if that generation doesn't pay for it, the genera it some generation will. From the uh, establishment of the day of prayer, uh, I just want to read these words from uh, Abraham Lincoln proclaiming a national day of fasting and prayer in 1863. He said, we have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to say to the God that made us, to pray to the God that made us. It behooves us then to humble ourselves before the offended power, to confess our national sins. So this whole notion of collectively confessing sins and to pray for clemency and forgiveness it is the duty of nations as well as of men to confess their sins and transgressions in humble sorrow, yet with assured hope that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon. He had a sense, as did others, of slavery as a national sin. It's very interesting because in the American political tradition, the conservative side of the American political spectrum has always been that which focused more on personal morality. And the left wing of the American political spectrum has traditionally focused on public morality. Somewhere around the 1960s, the left became very over-secularized. I, I, I'm not sure how this happened, given that Martin Luther King was a great political light of, of the American left. I don't know how this it's an odd question. Bobby Kennedy was very soulful in his approach. But what happened was because the left began to behave almost derisively towards any kind of a larger moral vision within political issues, what happens from, from those of us from a spiritual perspective is that with both patriotism, love of your tribe, love of your country, as well as some sense of connection to otherworldly higher power, People are hardwired for it. If you don't give them the right thing, they will, if you don't give them the real thing, they will take the ersatz version. So something horrible has happened in this country in that those who many of us believe represent the furthest thing away from a genuine moral vision 
are now claiming the M word. Now, African-American community, for the most part, has never broken its connection between progressive politics and its, the black churches, for instance. But in white America, usually when we think of religion we think and, and religiously-based politics, we think in terms of conservatism, although that's relatively new. When I was growing up in the, uh, during the Vietnam War, uh, for instance, the Berrigan brothers, William Sloan Coffin, et cetera, there was very much an American left. Now, a young man said to me uh, once at a lecture, he stood up and he said, well, you know, Ms. Williamson, I mean, with all due respect, and I don't even think he said that, uh, you're a bit of an old hippie, he said. <laughs> so if we're going to be honest about this, all you did, all your generation did when you were growing up, you were just all sex, drugs, and rock and roll. To which I responded, that was just part of the day. <laughs> I said, the rest of the day, we stopped a war. What have you done, young man? And I think that's important. Yes, we were sex, drugs, and rock and roll part of the day. And the other day, we stopped a war and brought down a president. And the fact that we were reading Alan Watts and delving so deeply into things like Ram Dass and listening to Martin Luther King, that was all part of the impetus that we had. Now, what happened at that time in the 1960s was that there were people, by the way, at those anti-war rallies, we sang, all you need is love at the anti-war rally. <laughs> we were stoned, but that's not the point. <laughs> we're not now, okay, except on pharmaceuticals. We'll talk about the pharmaceutical psychotherapeutic industrial complex in a few minutes. <laughs> that's, that's another thing. Okay, but let's go back to the 60s, if we may, for a moment. And then I'm almost finished, and then I want to put it out in the conversation. During the 1960s, there were people in the political realm who held aloft political visions in the context of the larger philosophical and spiritual visions of America, for American democracy. Bobby Kennedy was one, Martin Luther King was one. And to some extent, before that, John F. Kennedy. We, however, were not yet an adult generation. We were teenagers and young adults, right? So you're, it's like young people who, who love Bernie today. We were, we got it but we were not yet old enough that we were wielding power, but we were old enough to understand the vision and we loved it. Those people were literally shot and killed in front of our eyes. Literally shot and killed in front of our eyes. One of Bobby Kennedy's sons uh, watched his father's assassination on television. He became a drug addict as we know and he died of an overdose several years later. There is a way in which the bullets that shot the Kennedys and the bullets that shot Martin Luther King psychically struck a generation. And they carried a very, very loud message. Go home. And then the kids at Kent State. Oh, Kent State was important, because that means we're really coming at you specifically. Kent State was, that, that, that nailed it. Okay? We're coming at you. Okay? So those, those uh, bullets carried a very loud unspoken message. You will go home now. There will be no further protest. You do whatever you want to do in the private sector. And you'll be free there. Man, you're free. You can buy the blue one. You can buy the red one. You can buy the yellow one. You are free. But you will leave the public sector alone now. 
you will leave it to whoever, whoever wants it so bad that they are willing to kill in order to control it. And that's what my generation did. What's interesting now is that we're getting to be older and we're thinking about our deathbed and what we're going to think uh, on the last day of our lives. And I don't think I'm the only one for whom the thought that I might die knowing I let the fuckers get to me is actually worse than the thought that they might kill me if I stand up to them. And there's a lot of social force in that. The idea that the idea that you might die knowing you didn't really do what you came here to do, that thought is more horrifying than the idea that you might be killed if you do. So America's not over yet. Um, when we look at the conversation about reparations, the reason I believe reparations are so important is because, first of all, there's the idea of national atonement. Uh, when an Ohio congressman uh, submitted the need for a congressional apology for slavery, Newt Gingrich was House Speaker at the time, and he said that all that was was a symbolic gesture and that he didn't see how it would help one child learn to read. Uh, I respectfully disagree. First of all, for those of us of faith, atonement is not just a symbolic gesture. And secondly, it would have a lot to do with teaching a child to read because as the former pope said, once you've atoned for something and admitted the error, you, you, once, if America would just go all the way, go all the way, then there are, there are a lot of people who would see the, the underlying racism involved in much of the uh, economic policy and certainly mass incarceration and so forth. So um, Germany, uh, after World War II, You've got Germany, World War II ended in 1945. And I submit to you from a metaphysical perspective that Germany would not be riding so high today, economically and socially, uh, were it not for the fact that they did what they needed to do. There was not a kind of sort of apology after World War II. And that includes about $80 billion of reparations to Jewish organizations. By the time of the 20th century, reparations were considered, uh, the idea that reparations to African Americans is considered outlandish, is outlandish. Uh, we're not talking about individual checks, but in terms of billions of dollars spent on educational programs and economic programs, what's outlandish is that it's considered outlandish. And so you've got a generation of Germans, young people, who carry the appropriate understanding of what happened because it's so much a part of their educational system. They carry an appropriate, I won't say an appropriate shame, but healthy shame. And they're not carrying the toxicity of the karmic debt. We are, 1864, the Civil, the, the Civil War ended, and we are still carrying, every generation of Americans is still carrying this karmic debt for no other reason than that we have not yet fully paid it. So in issue after issue after issue, the fact that we have turned money into our God, that short-term economic gain for multinational corporations is given greater primacy than humanitarian principles of justice and brotherhood, think Trans-Pacific Partnership and the whole orgy of deregulation and so forth, there's hardly any issue alive in, a, in our society today that causes us stress and train and strain and controversy that cannot be seen and discussed within the context of the, this larger adherence to the principles on which we purport to believe. 
I want to open this up so that we can, I can reflect to the best of my ability from this, on this conversation and the topics that you bring up from this perspective. Um, I do want to say one thing. I was reading an article, I don't know if it was Noam Chomsky or Chris Hedges or someone, and someone said to me, what do you think of this, Marianne? And I said, I agree with the diagnosis, but not the prognosis. I agree with what has happened, but what I don't agree is about what is therefore necessarily going to happen. Buddha was born about 500 years before Jesus. Buddha's basic, he made many expansive, he expanded human consciousness and understanding, and one was the whole idea of action, reaction, action, reaction, or karma. Jesus, 500 years later, but but remember, Jesus was a Jew, so in stating this, he was stating a principle which predated him, which is the principle of the atonement. Yom Kippur is the holiest day of the Jewish year, the day of atonement. The Catholics confess as they go along. And uh, in Alcoholics Anonymous, you must admit the exact nature of your character defects and do your best to, to make amends where, where appropriate. But me the message of the atonement in whether Jewish or Christian, in response to action-reaction, karma, is that in the presence of God's love, the karma is burned. And you can have a cosmic reset button. The reason I am hopeful, first of all, I believe hope is a moral imperative. Second of all, I think if you have a, a real reading, if you take a good read of American history, there is reason to hope. Americans often get there late. Ask anybody anywhere on the planet. They roll their eyes about us. God, we're slow to get it. But I don't care what country it is on the planet, those same people will with the, roll their eyes about us and just can't believe how slow we are to pick up on what's happening. We'd be the first to admit that when we do get it, we slam it like nobody's business. It has been our journey so far, so far, this is not guaranteed, but it has been so far our journey that we have tended to self-correct. And I think what the prognosis of ain't it awful, ain't it awful, which it is. I mean, we have, we are basically on the Titanic right now. We're on it, we're headed for the iceberg. The iceberg could be nuclear, it could be climate change, there's so many forms the iceberg could take, it doesn't matter. What matters is that if you only look at this through a rational lens, um, it could be argued that it's over. However, I believe in miracles, what does that mean? I believe in what happens inside human beings when they get it. And nobody gets it like people who get it because they get what it's supposed to be. And when you put people, whether from a secular or, or a spiritual perspective, who really get how important democracy is and how it is a nutrient out of which self-correction does occur, and or you have enough people as the Quakers as uh, the, those called to, the, to, the, to, the, to Dr. King's vision, as they were from many different religious perspectives, when people's hearts and minds are on fire, things happen, and they've happened in America. The very fact that this country was established, the majority of colonists were royalists. So the one thing I want to leave you with, particularly the young people, don't, let, don't get upset that the majority doesn't get it. The majority never gets it. By definition, the status quo is quite happy with the way things are, by definition. Society never moves because the majority wake up, wakes up one day and goes, oh, let's do it. The majority didn't wake up and go, oh, let's free the slaves, shall we? 
The majority didn't wake up and say, oh, let's give women the right to vote. The majority, as I said, didn't even wake up and say, let's break from England. Social movements occur, and profound historical change happens because enough people get it. There's a lot of talk about that tipping point. Is it pie? Is it that three? Is it four? Is it 11%? Whatever it is, is nowhere near the majority. And what people who come at social activism, whether it's a Gandhi, whether it's a King, whether it's anybody taking this non-rational approach to spiritual activism, is the idea that the real axis of social change is not horizontal but vertical. If you're only looking at it from a, from a horizontal perspective, you think what you need is more and more people to, to agree with you, and so you go around dumbing down your message, watering down your message all the time, think corporate Democrats. Because what happens is you, lose some you win some elections and lose your moral authority, okay? If you stay with the vertical, you're not, try you're, not, you're not trying to get other people to agree with you. You are creating that resonant field. And then anybody who, as James Joyce would say, is almost in it, <laughs> comes ultimately to you. I see that. I, I do see that. I think that there are, you see it in some of the young people. That, that article, the articles by the people like the Noam Chomsky's and the, and the Chris Hedges and all that, when I say I, I agree with their diagnosis but not their prognosis, what they do not include in the articles I've read is some of these millennials and some of what's going on. And I, having been of a generation which did interrupt the, that trajectory of history, um, didn't fix everything, and for some of the reasons that I said. After the 60s, what happened was that, it's very interesting, yes, we read Alan Watts and Ram Dass did the I Ching and then protested the war. That mix was not considered odd. After the 60s, though, those two groups split. Traditional activists, political activists, only working allopathically on externals, basically took the East Coast. <laughs> Those who said, no, you got to work on consciousness, you got to work on the level of cause, they basically took the West Coast. <laughs> and they have spent decades looking derisively at the other. <laughs> and the traditional political types have said those people are all just navel gazers and the consciousness people have said those people don't get it, you can just change things on the outside but that's not going to do it. What's happening is that we're going where we need to be, which was where Martin Luther King was, which is where Gandhi was. We're getting back to that great both and. And we've seen it in our country, we've seen it in other places in the world, and I hold a vision that we're seeing it unfold right now. You put those both and together and miracles happen. Martin Luther King said, we have a power in us more powerful than bullets. And we, like I said, we, let us not, you know, every generation before us, every generation, despite some of the most horrifying evils perpetrated in the name of, of the United States and by official arms of the United States, having perpetrated terrible evils, there have been Americans who stood up, who said not on our watch, who sacrificed when necessary and how necessary, in order to put American democracy back on the track of its own genuine efforts at being who we say we are. Let us not be the first generation to be so cynical or so numbed out or so filled with whining and negativity or so co-opted that we ourselves fail to get up as the captain, unfortunately, of the Titanic did not do in time, take the wheel of this ship and turn it around. It's completely up to us. Thank you very much.
Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Very kind of you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. I am honored. Okay, now let's talk about anything that you want to talk about. You know, like I said, uh, the reason I was so excited about coming here does have to do with the fact that it's a divinity school. So if we could, uh, I, the first questions I'd like to take, and like I said, I'll do my best to reflect on these things, people who are working, either coming from a divinity place, uh, working on social activism, or social activists working on the spiritual, those are the questions I'd, I'd like to take first in the conversation I'd like to give primacy to here, if that's okay. Okay, yes ma'am. Thank you. Uh, I just wanted to speak to something that happened this week. Something happened this week? Yes, uh, Monday was known as Called what day? Indigenous, indigenous. indigenous. Yeah, I've always thought, Im or Immigrants Day. I think it should be called Immigrants Day, too, or Indigenous Day. Absolutely, it is. No, I, I, I actually talk about that here um, uh, in, in this book. We have evolved to the point of realizing, he, first of all, the indigenous people had lived for thousands of years on this continent before he quote unquote discovered it. Um, <laughs> There were something around 10 to 15 million indigenous uh, natives uh, on this north of Mexico uh, before they got here in 1492, and within about 150 years because of war and also disease, because their bodies were not, there were only a million left. Um, so unfortunately, I actually think Immigrants Day would be great, but your, your basic point is uh, that this was a mass murderer, and he was sent by two of the most wicked uh, Ferdinand and Isabella were not nice people. Uh, I'm a Jew. My, my ancestry knows some about the Ferdinand and Isabella, Isabella too. So uh, we have evolved to the point where it is time to no longer call this uh, Columbus Day. Now, but you know what's exciting for me as someone who's been around as long as I've been around? Yeah, well, um, like this book, this book was published in 1998. And uh, one of the things I say in this book is that a catastrophe is coming. And that was before 2001, which is interesting because looked at from a metaphysical perspective, you could see it. We'll talk about that if you like. But, but one of the things I love about this country, and I see it in my own career, um, you, you know, society, as I was saying before about the majority, society doesn't move because the majority gets it. It moves because of a small group of people, usually considered outrageous radicals by the status quo of their time, have a better idea. And Columbus Day is an example. You know, I was saying that in 1998 in this book and others were, and now it's, it's a cultural buzz. So it's kind of fun going through history and seeing how things that seem weird or new age or fringe or whatever, two, three, three decades later, are being discussed at Harvard. <laughs> yes, I do, actually. I, I think it is. I think it is. Uh, uh, it, it is an aspect of atonement. I think that if I were a Native American, I would feel uh, deeply insulted and offended by a holiday called Columbus Day. Yes, I do. Um, and that, that is an aspect of atonement. There are many aspects of it, things that are just blatantly racist, blatantly prejudiced, blatantly homophobic, blatantly um, uh, anti-Semitic. On the other hand, you want to be careful that you don't stop with symbolic gestures. You know, atonement and amends. Atonement and amends. It's not atonement or amends. It's atonement apology, not just atonement, because atonement is an internal. Atonement is an internal, you know, going to God with our sins, 
we don't call them sins in a more enlightened perspective, but our mistakes, and an apology to the person. And I have in this book, and also my book, Illuminata, and have around the country um, uh, done ritualized apologies on the, uh, on the part of white America, from white Americans to African Americans, as well as to Native Americans and so forth. Um, so uh, it, it's multi-pronged. So that's not enough just to change the name. But is it important? Absolutely, I, I agree. By the way, I just want to go back. I, I didn't mean to say that I didn't think cool ideas were discussed early on at Harvard. So um, <laughs> when I said later, you're talking about them at Harvard. Yeah, OK. Yes, ma'am. <clears throat> is fairly progressive as a result, whereas, for example, the British, the heinous, you know, the atrocities in Africa, like in Kenya and stuff, yes. that have never been, there's no responsibility, no public responsibility. Churchill was involved in those things. Mm -hmm. I mean, all mm -hmm. these, you know, great, mm -hmm. brilliant, you know, rhetoricians, oh, but they didn't address, you know, I mean, just heinous Well, there things. are two things involved. One yeah. is time and one is space. Yeah. Um, Auschwitz is right there. Right. Bergen-Belsen is right there, yeah. and it happened last year. That's what, what you had at the end of World War II. With your talking about colonial empires, Britain's not the only one not who commits one. and has committed some atrocities a few miles away, right? It's easier to create the buffer and the denial, and also when it was generations away. That, that when it comes to African-Americans, that's where you've got a real, um, and, and the failure of American educational system. You've got too many generations who honestly do not know the history. Right, and I, this dumbing us down by sort of the, you know, infusion of corporate money into public education on purpose to stop people from thinking too well, much. Well, the Texas, uh, the stories that we know about with Houghton Mifflin and the uh, Texas school books and just barely a mention. That very title, Dumbing Us Down, John Taylor Gatto, a lot of people have never heard of that book. That was a New York Times bestseller at a certain point. It's an, inf you know, it makes people very angry to think that our educational system, which was meant to serve democracy, was co-opted by the sort of corporate fascists, the robber barons in the 19th century. John Taylor Gatto's work is, is great on that. These things, however, are so multifaceted. Yes, they are. And it's important that we keep to the nuances of the conversation. First of all, the, the whole idea, and once again, going back to, to Jefferson, it's, it's what education should be, and this is why you're here, those of you who are students and faculty at Harvard, that's why education is important, is because it hones the critical thought processes of people. Education at its highest does not tell people what to think. It trains people how to think. Right. Which in a in a go in a democracy where the wisdom of people and once again the radicalism of American democracy is that it is not uh, supposed to rely on who your parents were or a class or anything else, but the wisdom and conscience of the average American. If the idea was, if informed properly by free press and their critical thought processes trained by a free public educational system, would give us the power. Uh, to responsibly govern a great nation. Um, what you're saying is absolutely true, but it's also, there are many ways that Americans are dumbing themselves now. Uh, I mentioned earlier what I call, and I do not call it jokingly, the pharmaceutical, uh, psychotherapeutic, industrial complex. Um, we now have an epidemic of casual antidepressant use. I'm not talking about psychotherapeutic drugs, which could be arguably within any group, uh, talked about in terms of uh, appropriate uh, 
prescription for bipolar, et cetera. I'm talking about people who just don't know how to handle a tough day. Um, this is not a time in American history to be numb. This is not a time in American history to be not upset. One of my favorite, there's a picture that I use in one of my sister giant conferences of a, of a young girl, young woman, and she's sitting there at a, some protest or another, and her sign says, I am very upset. <laughs> one of my favorite. Uh, Paul Hawken uses the term blessed unrest. Or I like the bumper sticker, if you're not outraged, you're not paying attention. That's right. I couldn't agree with you more. But let's talk about that also, if, if we may, within a spiritual context. On one hand, if you're looking at this country, police brutality, mass incarceration, and so forth. By, by the way, this stuff is nothing new. I was reading this book. I, I don't mean to be touting my own book, because this book is dated, because it's, it's, uh, it was the late 90s. Which but book this is was it? All it's called Healing the Soul of America. And I talk about mass incarceration in there, and I talk about the corporatocracy. And I so none of this just exploded. It was always under there, or it has been under there for the last few decades. It's the only reason I mention it. But I want to go back a little bit. If you are not, if you are looking at the world today and not grieving, you're not looking. But the reason spirituality matters is because spirituality gives you a context for rejoicing in the infinite possibilities. And that's what the abolitionists had. Now, let's, let's take the abolitionists as an example, which arose from the Quaker movement. This was their religious perspective which not which made the 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 reality of slavery re, their religious perspective was that the condition of slavery was intolerable it wasn't that oh that's really terrible that it's really terrible is not enough in fact too many people get stuck at tisk 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 it's that as quakers it was intolerable but what they had from a religious perspective is two things. The current reality is intolerable. I cannot remain silent and, and Martin Luther King had this, Gandhi had it, the Quakers had it. It's more than what is is intolerable. It is when seen from a spiritual perspective, what could be is possible. And if you, if, if you, if you, if you go to just the what is is tolerable, is intolerable, you are liable to burn out and you are liable to be sucked into, into so much of the negativity and so much of the anger that you become of the problem. But when you are centered in rejoicing of possibility because in whatever way you say it, God is great. And whatever way you say it, there is no order of difficulty in miracles, then you not only have the endurance and the patience, because a, a revolution, and that's what we need now, is a spiritual and political revolution. It is a very serious business. You need to be a real grown-up to do this. But not only does it give you the endurance and the patience, but it also gives you that space. That is why Martin Luther King, it's so profound that he let us know, uh, I see the light. He, he knew they were after him. He clearly, there was a premonition, he clearly knew. But he, 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 the greatest gift that he left was we're getting there. And at the Lorraine Motel, his last conversation with his minions was not let's go over strategy. It was let's go over again the principles of nonviolence. I, I just Is it possible that we, um, 
that we get some students who are here to ask some questions. I know that you've had an opportunity to ask. I just, can I just finish one thing? So humates, humility, human being, sense of humor, they all have the same root. It has to do with our relationship to our Mother Earth. And the solution for climate change is the carbon sink, carbon sequestration, getting it out of the atmosphere, back into the soil. There are more microorganisms yeah, in a teaspoon right, of I soil than there are human beings on the planet. Yeah, I've heard all and that. it's a spiritual solution, right. ultimately. It's a miraculous But let's talk about the spiritual solution. Yeah. When the early church, uh, why, did they, why did they start killing the women? Why did they destroy pagan culture? Why did later the, uh, the Catholic Church want to burn women at the stake? Pagan culture, during pagan culture, there were women. They were called witches, which meant wise women. And they, what they were, were the holistic healers and health practitioners and therapists of their day. They were priestesses. And they held aloft in all the villages and all the outlying areas a sense among the people of sacred partnership between people and the earth, people in the sky, people in the water. Early Christendom completely repudiates that paradigm. And instead of seeing humanity in sacred partnership with the earth, it posits that God gave man uh, dominion over the earth. And so you had to get rid of the culture that's one of the, the main impulses. It was a spiritual break. That was a problem, a spiritual break. But you had to get rid of the whole notion of women who held aloft that perspective. And I'll tell you, it's exciting being here with you guys, but it's really exciting giving that message in England and Scotland and Ireland. You go, girls. But we're there, we're, you know, and it's really a profound lineage, actually. It's very beautiful. Um, but once again, it was a spiritual error. As soon as you introduce into the thinking of Western consciousness that God had given man dominion over the earth rather than we were in sacred partnership, all this became inevitable. Uh, are we doing right? Yes, yes, ma'am. Hi. Um, so I'm a Unitarian Universalist minister, but I'm also the aunt of a 19, well, now 20 year old who has zero intention of voting okay. um, and does not see the relevance of it. Okay. Um, and so I, I'm, what I'm, I'm going to talk with my mouth open a little, but um, so. One of the things that I'm struggling with here is the rise of the nuns, the decline of progressive um, mainline church, um, the deep spirituality that many people feel um, but don't engage in community, um, and how that's connected with the way we I interact with the government. If millennial, the millennial generation, which is coming up, and, and then the I generation after it, um, that has the potential to do be this revolution, if they're disconnected from the community of spirituality, if they're disconnected from the ways in which traditional and, and the long inheritance of spirituality can influence the way we can revolutionize the world, I, I, I'm just finding, uh, I'm just really kind of struggling with that disconnect, both the cynicism that you're talking about and then the, the disconnect from spirituality. Oh, I, I so understand, and that, that entire question has been very central to my work, uh, my, my career for decades, and I live in the middle of it. Um, the, when, when my career began, uh, when I first started lecturing on A Course in Miracles, the AIDS crisis emerged full-blown very quickly. So my career was never um, separate from deep human suffering and the idea of how it was the role of the spiritual perspective to be the comforting element. 
and the miracle working agent. I then went to Detroit, where you certainly can't separate the idea of, of, of love from deep human suffering and racial elements and so forth. But when I left California and that whole mainstreaming of spirituality and enlightenment impulse began to unfold, it moved in a decidedly apolitical direction. Very white bread, manicured, uh, 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 unbelievable faux spirituality um, that somehow what is spiritual is getting whatever I want and making God my errand boy so I can have it. Um, <laughs> somehow that's spiritual. Um, but I believe that that's beginning to change. I, I see that in my own, I ran for Congress last year and uh, giving that, oh, thank you, thank you. Thank you. Um, I was very, very supported uh, by people, perhaps some people here around the country uh, uh, financially to do that. Uh, the yoga community was just unbelievable. Um, so even though my, my naivete and my, my, the fatal flaw for me politically was my inexperience with political campaigns. Uh, that's, that's a whole different thing than knowing the issues and, and it's a whole different thing from being able to talk to people about it. Um, but I saw, if anything, I feel more strongly. I don't see myself running again, but this has completely convinced me that that's just educational. When you actually do talk to people from a, for instance, uh, not only when you remind people that there's more going on here than just you getting what you want, that certainly breaks through to people, but also more than anything what's happening today, and this speaks to that community a lot, there is no public issue that will not make its way to your door. So you drink all that green juice, okay, and you enjoy all that, all that soy, and you enjoy all that vegan meal, because Monsanto, you know, so you, you, good luck with all that green juice, because as long as you've got your entire food supply corrupted, it will get to you too. And I think that there is a more of an awakening. Um, it's sad when you hear of a 19-year-old who uh, thinks it doesn't make a difference. I don't know how anyone could think that if, you know, tell that to an Iraqi. Tell that to an Iraqi, that it wouldn't have made a difference if it had been Al Gore. Um, so sometimes that's very, uh, and, and by the way, the fact that we countenanced the theft of an American uh, presidential election is what started this whole horror that we have right now. And Jesse Jackson said we should go to Washington. And it was Al Gore who told us not to. And I asked him on a radio interview, I said, he said, I, I just can't believe this was after the Patriot Act. And he said, I just can't believe that the people are allowing this. I said, well, you started that. He said, what are you talking about? I said, you told us not to march on Washington. And he said, well, I didn't want to have blood on my hands. I said, first of all, it could have theoretically could have been very nonviolent. Secondly, if you're not willing to have blood on your hands, we would, where would any of us be in any of this? And I believe that certain forces stole that election and went, oh, that was easy. <laughs> Probably they were surprised by how easy it was. Um, anyway, so uh, you, you simply cannot look at the facts and say it doesn't matter. Um, you can look and say that because of an unholy alliance between the Democrats and the Republicans, it really began back in the 1960s in response to the popularity of uh, George Wallace. They have formed a very unholy alliance to keep third party voices out. Women's suffrage came from the suffrage movement. Social Security came from uh, Socialist, uh, Socialist Party, Suffrage Party. 
So third-party movements have been extremely important in our society. In his farewell address, uh, George Washington warned us against political parties. So is there a horrible corporate alliance uh, between the Democrats and the uh, uh, Republicans? Absolutely. But to see that as a reason not to vote is just, there's just no legitimacy on any level to that. There is a reason, however, to choose the Democrat who's not one of the corporatists who just supports his dad. So. All right, who's next? You uh, Hi. Um, oh, yes, sir. My name is Alfredo. And my question is, what role do you see the growing Latino population playing uh, in this awakening, this realization, in particular, uh, the activism of undocumented students that, in the words of a, a professor here in Harvard Education School, uh, they are challenging and continue to challenge America to live up to its ideals. They continue to challenge America to, I'm sorry? To live up to its ideals, yes. namely liberty. Yes. And of course, what quality. the Latino uh, population has on your side is numbers. So, I mean, you, you've got tremendous power. And it's just called the assumption of power. It's called the assumption of a voting block. And what it needs is leadership, which hopefully you're planning to do. Um, <laughs> I mean, you're, you're sitting on a sweet spot there. You really are. Because, you know, unlike African-Americans, unlike Jews, unlike, you know, many, you, you mean, this is just such a population which represents. So you're just, the Latino community is just at the beginning of its, uh, 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 of, of, the, of the assumption of political power that is possible. Let's just hope that it will not be, as so many of us are, uh, so co-opted and seduced by the goodies that are offered us if we're willing to go along, <coughs> right? Thank you. But the possibilities are profound. Yes, sir. Am I, am I doing right? <coughs> uh, my name is Andre Sullivan. How do you do? How do you do, sir? Uh, I'm the director of Global Trends in Nonviolence. And uh, I have a question. Uh, what if the people in every country in Asia, in Syria, in Iran, in the United States, what if the people in all the cities, in Ferguson, Baltimore, and New York, united to promote nonviolence? And I think that that could unite all the religions. And so I'd like to ask you if you would lead a movement of a worldwide unity campaign and to promote nonviolence for the children. Uh, after <coughs> the primary, you were interviewed by Barbara Marks Hubbard and Barbara Fields and two others. And in that interview, you stated that it's time to lay down the gauntlet and it's time to take it out of the monastery, which I think in a, that you meant that it's time to become political. And Barbara Marks Hubbard agreed with you, and so did the others. And that convinced me that you uh, could bring in the whole spiritual movement because they would follow you to unite with all the movements in a movement of nonviolence, which I'd like to present to you later. If I may. Um, first of all, congratulations on the work that you do. Um, during the Renaissance, uh, I don't think Michelangelo looked at uh, Leonardo and went, this is a Renaissance. Do you think this is a Renaissance? Uh, <laughs> I think we should form a club. Um, it wasn't a club. When you're talking about movements of great historical significance, um, I think that something is happening that is coming up from the bottom of things. 
It is not, as you, as you yourself have pointed out, this is an international, it is not centered in any one particular part of the world. It is not centered in one particular ethnicity or anything else. It is coming up from the bottom of humanity. Materialization, dense materialization, often limits rather than promotes the harnessing of energy. That's number one. Number two, um, this is not an age of the soloists. This is the age of the choir. Soloists, they can kill. And that was one of the things that has changed. This, this has got to be, this it can't just be, the universe uses personalities, definitely, as tuning forks. But this idea of leading a movement, uh, Gandhi said the leading, the leader of the Indian independence movement was the small, still voice within. The leader I'm interested in is the leader that tells you what you should do and the leader inside you that tells you what you should do and the leader inside you that tells you what you should do. I always say I'm not trying to get a message out. I'm trying to get a message in. Gandhi said, my life is my message. So that whole paradigm of I'm going to lead, I, I, and, and you know, in the Tao Te Ching, it says one who is, uh, the, the real leader does not think of himself as a leader, he thinks of himself as a follower. And that's the leadership paradigm today. You're just holding the space for the brilliance of others. So I, and I've started nonprofits, and I, and I know from, from the need at times of dense materialization, but we need to move into quantum realms now we need to be going, and, and as soon as you start setting up organizations and having boards of directors and raising money and nonprofit, that all the, we don't have time. And it actually, you lose your innocence. The real power is for you to get up in the morning and you meditate and you prayed and just spirit directs you where to go and what to do and spirit will direct you. And spirit isn't gonna tell me what you're supposed to do and spirit isn't gonna tell you what I'm supposed to do. We need to move right into the quantum realm where assignments are given through inner guidance. Oh, I'm sorry, Kristen. I, okay, and after that, ma'am. There are two here. Yes, somebody over there? Hi, Marianne here. Hi. Um, I was curious. I, I lived in Germany for five years, and yes, there is this atonement, but at the same time, there's this everyday reminder of what happened, because if you turn on the television, there's like it's a 24-hour program on World War II and Hitler, and it's almost... A lot of people there find it a bit much, like especially yes. with their kids, you know. So there's yes. this issue and pain and kind of guilt yes. around it. Yes. And then I find myself confused in a way when um, these like 98-year-old people are tried for war crimes, um, which I don't know if you've seen that circulating. Yes, I have. And I was wondering, actually, I, I can't form an opinion on it. I was wondering okay. what your, I, I guess, okay. in a spiritual opinion mm -hmm. and maybe political. I don't. Okay. I have an opinion about both, uh, because both are very interesting. The first of all, there's a, there's a part in The Course in Miracles. You know, sometimes you hear people with this faux spirituality, you can't make a mistake, don't feel bad, you can't make a mistake. Yes, you can. <laughs> <laughs> so, atoning for me, only, only sociopaths have no conscience. So remorse is very important. Healthy shame is very important. Conscience is very important. Feeling terrible about it. That's why you don't just take an antidepressant because you feel guilty. If you feel guilty, you have to address what happened, right? So, you know, we are living in a society that likes to throw this yellow, happy, smiley face over everything. Be happy, be happy, be happy, which is a neurosis, not a, an enlightened perspective. So, but the Course in Miracles also says this. Because the ego mind both leads you to do the right thing and then would, have you, would punish you terribly for having done it once you do. So it is spirit that promotes what the Course in Miracles calls the arousal of discomfort when you know you've made a mistake. 
but it is the ego that would stay on too long. It's like I once said to somebody, Jesus was on the cross for three days, not six. At a certain point, get off the cross, we need the word. Right? At a certain point. You can't skip it. You can't skip the crucifixion, go right into the resurrection, because then you're not in transformation, you're in denial. But to cling to it and coddle it, then that becomes your calling card. So I think what's happening in Germany today, that's a very healthy discussion. Is it very important that the German nation teach its children what happened? Has that been extremely important? Yes. Is it also a, 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 a legitimate conversation that now you've got a generation that's discussing putting it in a more appropriate place? I can see where the conversation is relevant. I mean, I'm not a German, so I cannot speak from within that system. But th it is an interesting question, and one could say at a certain point, the mea culpa becomes, and then actually the course says you're more likely to do it again. But it, it hasn't been all that long, and I can think now in terms of the health of a civilization and society, this is probably around the healthy time for it to start. But, should they, but certainly they should never forget, and in their educational system not be allowed to forget, just as we need to be reminded in terms of slavery. In terms of the 98-year-old war criminal, you betcha I think that 98-year-old war criminal should be on trial. I don't care how old Dick Cheney is. When the time comes that we get it, may he be on trial. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I think that's a very, uh, justice is very important. Um, something happened, I think, I, think, um, I think Gerald Ford had good intentions, but I think his pardoning Richard Nixon was a really bad idea for the national soul. And the fact that we uh, have held no one, we have held no one accountable on Wall Street. The fact that we have not, uh, I don't know how many of you have seen, uh, Vincent Bugliosi did the, did the film, uh, The Prosecution of an American President. Have any of you seen that? Uh, he was the LA prosecutor who tried uh, Charles Manson, very serious prosecutor. And uh, he lays out a case for the prosecution of George Bush for murder. Um, I, I just don't understand why there are people who are in prison in the United States, although unfortunately I do understand, as we all do, prison in the United States for decades for stealing TVs or smoking marijuana, and uh, at least the reasonable possibility enough to take to a grand jury. I mean, everyone is innocent until proven guilty, but I do believe that there's, I'm someone who believes there's a reasonable case to be made for war crimes on the part of uh, former president, vice president of the United States, and it is, justice is an aspect of the face of God. It's just like the apology for slavery. It's not just that black America needs it, probably white America needs it more. So it's not just that that 98-year-old needs to be, you, you, just to see the, the correct uh, practice of justice is extremely important. So no, I don't believe that because you're 98, it should just be, oh, well, it doesn't matter. It's it, it, that justice should be impartial, justice should be blind. And one of the things it should be blind to is not only color, it should be blind to age. Uh, that's how I feel anyway. Uh, uh, Martin Luther King said there are two kinds of peace, negative peace and positive peace. He said negative peace is where there's no outright conflict, but there's underlying tension and anxiety. That's why in this book in, in 1998, before 2001, I was already talking about, oh, something terrible's coming. Because when people would say, oh, but things are so good during the Clinton years, I remember saying to so many people, doesn't that depend on where you're living? Doesn't that depend on what corner of an American city? Doesn't that matter, doesn't that depend on what corner of the world? So from a metaphysical perspective, you knew that cause and effect was such and bad stuff's coming. Martin Luther King said, real peace, positive peace, 
must be predicated on the um, practice of justice and brotherhood. So justice is, so just as injustice, such as you see behind the, uh, the mass incarceration phenomenon, a, a, an actual economically motivated, systematic practice of mass injustice, uh, I don't know how much more evil you can get than that, that is practiced in this country, there is also a lack of justice that is displayed towards whether it's uh, Wall Street barons who knowingly just brought down the economy or uh, president and vice president who might have, or at least, once again, it's a legitimate conversation. So that's how I feel about that. Yeah, I don't know, Kristen, you this lady here has had her hand up too, I'm sorry. I Thank you. So many of us who are here are students in mm -hmm. one of the various divinity schools, Harvard and some of the others. And I think one of the reasons we're here is because we hear that voice yes. inside. Yes. And what I notice happening for me and a lot of my classmates is we are so in tune with suffering. Yes. It's very hard to find that place of hope and to, and to be in day to day. And so one of the things I've heard you say over the years is five minutes in the morning with the Holy Spirit is enough to put the Holy Spirit in charge of your whole day. But I'm curious, what do you pray for that helps you to not um, just be overcome by the enormity of how open we are to being witnesses? And then my second question is, you may have intended this, but I want to ask if you will lead us in prayer before we leave tonight. I'd be glad to. Thank you. Okay. Now, first of all, you're at Harvard Divinity School. <laughs> and you said it's hard to find hope. Are you sure this is the business you want to be in? <laughs> I mean this very seriously. This is very, very significant. If you can't find hope, what hope is there for the world? I mean seriously. So let's talk now about divinity. Buddhism, Judaism, Christianity. So Buddha is born, his name was Siddhartha, his father was a great king. And the king was told when Buddha was born, your son will grow up to be by a great uh, seer. Your son will grow up to either be a great warrior or a great religious figure. And the father said, well, I don't want him to be a great religious figure. So what he decided to do was he built walls around his compound so that his son would never suffer and would never see suffering. And all, he had dancers and teachers and women and everything that could possibly make him happy, musicians, artists, throughout his growing up. Siddhartha grew up and he knew that something was missing. And one night he escaped and he went out and he saw suffering for the first time. Then he came back, he saw what he saw, blah, 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 let's make a long story short. Then he goes back and it was because Buddha saw suffering for the first time that began his path to enlightenment. If Buddha had never seen suffering, he would never have become enlightened. The Jews. It was the suffering of the Jewish people, of the Israelites at the hands of the Pharaoh as slaves in Egypt, to which Moses was called. So Siddhartha was called out, once again, two, it, very interesting, because they were both princes. Or Moses was not, but he was raised by the princes in the Pharaoh's palace. So the inner voice called Buddha called Siddhartha, you can't stay here. You must attest to the suffering of your people. 
But that begins, that's the platform which starts his path to enlightenment. Moses, Moses got out lucky because his mother put him in the basket and then he was picked up by the princess. So he's raised by the Pharaoh. He, he wasn't a slave. In a voice, you must bear witness to the agony, to the suffering of your people and lead them out of slavery. And then the slavery, uh, excuse me, and then the suffering of the Jewish people in the, in the uh, uh, desert for 40 years. And also the, the Holocaust. The Jews, Jews ha and, and Muslims share something Christians do not. And that is that the theology is interwoven with the history of the people. So you add to, which also has a lot of political uh, consequences too, which is something else, although also interesting. Um, so, and then you, so you add to that to the Holocaust. So in Judaism, the notion of God being present for us in our suffering is definitely part of the theological construct. In Christianity, of course, the suffering of Jesus on the cross. So theoretically, at a divinity school, you get what this suffering's about. <laughs> and what we were calling today in, in our meeting with the students, that's what priesthood is. That's what the new priesthood is. The priesthood is being the space of knowledge that you look deeply. One of the interesting things, whether it's uh, the, you know, the, the Christians at, at uh, Easter or the Jews at, at Passover, you tell the story. In Christianity, you have the Good Friday service where you move into the, the meaning of the depth of the suffering. In, in Judaism, you tell the story on Passover of what happened when the Jews were led out of their suffering. You bear witness. This is what, what uh, this is the soul force, the satyagraha, the ahimsa that of, of nonviolence that, that uh, uh, Gandhi talked about, that you bear witness to the suffering. But from a spiritual perspective, which is why Martin Luther King, once again, why you have the mix, whether it's Martin Luther King or Gandhi or someone who really gets the whole divinity thing, we see through the darkness to the light. Now, once again, somebody who's just skipping the darkness is not transcending it. They're just denying it. But someone who only bears witness to the darkness without a realization of the light beyond doesn't have the power to actually transform the darkness. And people don't just want your pity. What they'd really like is a miracle, thank you. <laughs> right? And when you yourself, so when you say, what, may I ask your religious tradition? Uh, raised Catholic, but not so much. OK, raised Catholic. <laughs> Okay, but, but, but so is Jesus a part of your problem-solving repertoire? Okay, so if Jesus is a part of your problem-solving repertoire, and we're really getting down here, what do you mean how do you not be overwhelmed by the enormity? Theoretically, he already took it on. Theoretically, so, so really the issue is for you inside yourself. It's not about how you... you, you teach others or take others, the, the, the issue, the Course in Miracles says the, the miracle worker, the primary responsibility is to accept the atonement for yourself. So really it's about your, you can't give people what you don't have. So he says in the Course in Miracles, let my walk to the cross have been the last walk. You don't have to do it anymore. It's been handled. And the idea there is the global mind. Now the Course in Miracles says he's not the only one who's done it. But it, really whether you think he was the only one who did it or others have done it, some Christians think he's the only one. Some of us believe he's not the only one. But we know of at least, I think we'd all agree, if you're even here, at least one that we know of, actually already got to the place where the level of consciousness overcame the world. He didn't say, be of good cheer, I've, I've fixed it. He said, be of good cheer, I've overcome it. That one human consciousness, at least that we know of, got to the point where the effects of worldly, what Buddha called illusion, have been nullified. And he dwelled on the level 
where he, he had already risen above it. Now, it takes the symbolic three days in time, just as the symbolic 40 years, for the earth plane, the conditions of the material plane, to catch up with the consciousness. But Jesus, he says in the Course, I'm not looking for martyrs, I'm looking for teachers, demonstrators. Do not join with me in my crucifixion. Join with me in the resurrection. So you're, you're with, the, whether it's Buddha or Jesus or, or, or Moses, whatever. Like my mother used to say, my mother had this way, I love it. The way she used to teach us the stories. So we know that there was somebody crucified to Jesus' left. We know there was somebody crucified, crucified to Jesus' right. But we don't hear that they resurrected. It was the consciousness of Jesus, right, which takes him to that level, which then null, makes null and void the, the, mani the manifestation of darkness that would seek to repudiate the will of God. God always gets the final say. That's the, that's the resurrective consciousness. Uh, my mother used to say, kids, this is how she taught us the Old Testament. <laughs> so, Moses is standing at the water. Now, he touches, he takes his staff, he touches the water, and the Red Sea parted. Now, there were Jews to his left, and there were Jews to his right, but it was Moses that made the water part. Now, if it hadn't been for Moses, it would have just been more Jews at the beach. <laughs> so I think it just been Jews at the beach. But it was the consciousness of Moses. It was the consciousness of Buddha. It was the consciousness of Jesus. So what happens is that Buddha and Jesus and Moses and any of the great religious figures, they are doors. They are it's only one door, and they're all names on the door that, that you go through, and then you are taken to that place. Now, you and I might not be in that place. We don't, if we're not enlightened masters yet, we don't live there 24-7. But when you pray to be a vessel or you practice infinite compassion, and you are in the presence of the sufferer, you actually, by definition, are a comforter. You're not overwhelmed by the enormity of it. They're like, who is God? I mean, that's like doubting God. So you, you, can't, you can't be a deliverer of the presence of God if you or yourself are saying, well, I hope this works. <laughs> right? So overwhelmed by the enormity, don't be overwhelmed by the enormity of the suffering. Be in awe at the power of God right? Have more, what the problem with most people is that they have more faith in the power of the cancer to kill them than they have faith in the power of God to heal them. Faith is an aspect of consciousness. So, the, so living on this planet, we have more faith in the power of the disasters of the world and the power of the disasters. So the abolitionists, you know, the abolitionists, these people didn't have cell phones, these people didn't have money, they didn't have anything but they had faith in what was possible and they knew the universe was moving in that direction. And it was that conviction. So overwhelmed by the enormity, you don't be in this work if that is not something you already take for granted. And Isaiah, God send me, right? And you hold the head of that dying person and, you, and, and your comfort to them it comes because all minds are joined. They know that they're in the presence of someone who the very, your presence there is the presence of the alternative that comforts them not because it says you won't die necessarily, but that it's all okay. Does that make sense? Thank you. Your own practice. Yeah, I was going to say something else along that, but I forgot what it was. Oh, sorry. Yes, ma'am. Yes. Sorry, my question is Pardon? Um, what do you see? What does it take for America to change its foreign policy? Do you think it's atonement 
to African American community would be one step. What does it take for America to change its foreign policy in terms of going to war? Well, first of all, I think it's enough of us to realize the urgency at this moment. Um, our grace period is over. This has been going on too long. Um, and uh, the survival of a species is not guaranteed. Uh, the survival of our democracy is not guaranteed. Um, it's only gross arrogance and immaturity that makes you think any good in life is guaranteed. Um, so number one, a, a critical mass of those of us realizing the urgency of the moment. Um, I'm looking at the millennials and feeling rather hopeful actually. I know there are those who see no point in, in voting, but in my conversations with them, once again, a historical perspective really helps. So what, you, you think you're the first generation that was had unbelievable odds against you? You think you're the first generation of Americans where the people perpetrating evil had all the money and the technical power? You think you're like the first ones? But they didn't whine, they did what it took. Number three, it takes a critical mass of enough of us willing to know, you know, I remember during the Arab Spring, uh, which unfortunately has not turned out as we'd wish, but um, I remember one of the television reporters saying to one of the young Egyptian men, how did you get all these people to come out here? He said, it's pretty easy once people get that they might die. Once they accept they might kill us, he said, then it's relatively easy. And uh, we become a Weasley generation of Americans. Um, I don't say that glibly. I certainly don't want to go out there and die. Uh, but we, we, we are not recognizing what's important. Um, and if you don't recognize what's important in life, what's happened is we have been assaulted by all day, every day, the, the barrage of meaninglessness. And that, and you know, uh, George Washington made a comment about his concern was that we would amuse ourselves to death. George Washington said that. So what it will take is uh, you doing whatever spirit moves you to do and you doing whatever spirit moves you to do and you doing whatever spirit moves you to do. And like I said, you know, that small still voice. I, uh, you know, we're in the middle of an election year. Um, I, I don't need to remind anyone here. This is as dramatic as it gets. You've got one team filled with some people I don't think they've ever read the Constitution. Uh, it's, it's, it's horrifying, actually, really scary. And then the other team that's deciding whether to really stand for the transformation of the situation as it is, or, um, you know, basically the, the way I look at it. Uh, the Republican Party, not all of it, I, you know, I, I agree with Eisenhower who said the American mind at its best is both liberal and conservative. I understand that there are high-minded conservative values, and I understand that there are high-minded liberal values. And I think politics at its best is where we hear that in each other. I know I have some very intelligent conservative friends with whom I, from whom I learn a lot um, and who I think have very good points to make whether I come down on the same side of a particular issue or not. But that, in, in my opinion, now this is just my opinion, it seems to me, and I think to many people, that the Republican Party has been kind of taken over by an extreme right-wing right element that does not display high-minded conservative values so much as their thing, which really is a corporatist agenda, uh, whereby a huge multinational, the short-term economic gain of huge multinational corporate forces is basically 
the bottom line and the U.S. government becomes its agenda. Now, we have a president. I mean, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, so celebrated by our Democratic president, does that as well. So this is not all one versus another. But the Democratic Party, for the most part now, <laughs> what has happened is the Republican Party, too often for my case, for my taste, promulgates policies and promotes policies that are in, are in, in, it is inevitable that human hardship will be caused. Income inequality, uh, kids can't afford college, people don't have health care, um, uh, people can't afford to, to live on the money they make, not to even mention the hardship, difficulty, and suffering that is caused in foreign wars and so forth. But the other party, too often for my taste, says it is so terrible. Oh, we feel all this pain. We will do what we can to ameliorate your pain. That's not enough. What we need to do is challenge the forces that make that pain inevitable. And that's what's happening in the Democratic Party right now. Uh, one major voice that says, I want to ameliorate all that pain, and one major voice that says, I want to change the system that ensures that pain. That's, but each and every one of us has a vote here, and by a vote, I mean much more than a literal vote. Each and every one, first of all, look where you are. I mean, you really are in a vortex of power. If you are a student or a faculty member, either here at Harvard or any of these, this surrounding, you have power. Exercise it. What are you supposed to do? I don't know. None of my business what you're supposed to do, <laughs> right? And that's, that's how it should stay. But as you do your own internal practice, through your own cultivation, through prayer, through meditation, through your own spiritual practice, it, it will make you a finely tuned intuitional instrument. And uh, Americans, I mean, we are a small portion of the world's population where we still even can vote for our elected representatives. Also, for those of us who are women, um, think of yourself not only expressing your own voice in honor of your ancestors and all they did so that we could even have the power that we have to express ourselves, but also think of all the women in this world who, around the world tonight as we speak, who if they were to express a fraction of what you and I take for granted as able to say if we want to say, would be lashed if not executed for doing so. So if these are not important times, I don't know what are. Yes, ma'am. Thank you so much for the work you've done on the planet. Thank you. Um, and thank you for highlighting the importance of atonement to African-Americans and reparations. As a descendant of um, enslaved people, my grandfather is 95 years old, and his grandparents were enslaved people, and mm -hmm. this summer I had the opportunity to go back to uh, the plantation where they were enslaved, my great-grandparents, Susan mm -hmm. and Moses Wood, um, and we're in Neck, Virginia. So I say that because they I think- They went back actually to the plantation where decades ago they were slaves. Yes, oh yes, uh, and we're in that county, Virginia. And I say that because I think that, as you have articulated, we forget how close this is yes. and how important it is. And you also articulate the fact that at the root of all of our suffering mm -hmm. is what the Civil War didn't fix, and that's the racism um, that's in our consciousness. So my question to you is, as you, as you travel throughout the country, how do people respond to, I love your, I love your book, I have it with me, I hope you'll sign it. Thank how you. do people respond to your call for atonement and reparations, <coughs> to your prayers for healing, and it, do people see anti-racism dismantling racial oppression as a spiritual practice? Yeah, okay. That's the way 
We're first of all, I want to point out to you, have you seen the book by Sue Monk Kidd, The Invention of Wings? I highly recommend it. It is a fictionalized dramatization of the life of two sisters, and I can't, I can't believe it, but I can't remember their name right now, who were, who, what was their name? The Grimke sisters. Did you read the book? I did. Isn't it wonderful? The Grimke sisters were two leaders in the abolitionist movement. The story, the main story, we know that the two little girls existed, but we don't really know what happened to the, to the African-American child. But it's this, it's fascinating because it is, this little girl has this, uh, she's white and she lives in this nice house and there's this little black girl who's with her all the time and they're best friends. And it takes the, the psychological story of one Christmas, mommy gives you to me as a present. So that's first of all, how can mommy give you to me as a present? And it's the whole psychological drama by which they realize what their relationship is to each other. I remember when I was in Kibera, which is one of the biggest slums in, um, in uh, outside Nairobi, or in Nairobi, conditions of this is the deep, the deep poor, and I remember seeing a little boy wondering if he realized where he was yet. So the psychology, which of course even racism goes deeper than just that reflection, which is that anybody's better than anybody else, that any, which ultimately is spiritual, that anybody's different than anybody else, i.e. the Quaker notion, no man can bow before any other man. So whether it's racism or homophobia or anti-Semitism or anything, it's the idea, it's really the idea of the other. So when you ask me, because audiences that I speak to are, my interest is in the power of the spiritual conviction. So I speak to people who might not be politically to the left, but whose dedication is to the realization that our eradicating from our thoughts, even the idea of the other, is the path of enlightenment. And what I have sought to do with my career and I feel that I and many others, I, I see it happening, is more and more people than realizing that political activism, it's like I say to people all the time, because um, you know, in The Course in Miracles it says, if it's not love, it's, it's not real, it's an illusion, and that's what Buddha said, which is that this three-dimensional plane is itself a mortal hallucination, which I do believe. But many people take that to mean, therefore, you don't have to fix it. So I'll say to people at my lectures sometimes, so if somebody in this audience right now keeled over and couldn't breathe, we wouldn't say, well, it's all an illusion anyway. <laughs> you know, we would quickly, any doctors here, any, any nurses here, everybody would call 911 immediately, everybody would leave the room quietly, please leave quietly, blah, 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 any doctors stay in the room, et cetera. So if it matters the suffering of one person, it should matter the suffering of anyone. It's very difficult. This is why the whole nonviolent aspect, Black Lives Matter, et cetera, is so important. It was, as Martin Luther King, Martin Luther King said, we do not mistake our passivity for weakness. We are spiritually active. We do not pass up any opportunity to persuade other people of the moral veracity of our argument. So when people, particularly people who are guilty, and I always felt this about uh, Barack Obama, I think one of the reasons Barack Obama was elected president, could be elected president, 
is because he, he does not have slave ancestors. So he, there's a subconscious level on which he does not bring up guilt. He does not bring up guilt because people do not subconsciously feel guilty in his presence. Guilty people fear punishment because they know they deserve it. So there's the fear because subconsciously, I know I, know I deserve a woman. So I'm assuming you're going to give it to me, right? So it, it, it's like there's this fear you walk in with, and that's why nonviolence is so extremely important. We were talking about this earlier today, where I was giving a talk about reparations once, and it was at the church in, uh, it was Martin Luther King's birthday, and I was talking about it, and I have an article, uh, it was in Huffington Post a year or so ago called Race and Repentance, Race, Repentance in, in, in America, if you're interested, because I think a lot of people just don't know the history of, uh, you know, African Americans know the history. You know, it's like a lot of people talking about Israel, they don't know the history. You know, it's so easy to say, well, Israel should this, or black should that, when you don't even know what you're talking about, <laughs> right? And there's plenty of that in our world today. Um, so, uh, where, where were we just now? Uh, oh, oh, so I was, I was telling Kristen and some others. So I was talking, 3,500 people in the audience, and I'm talking about amends and reparations. If all I want to do is get a lot of applause from African Americans, all I have to do is say what I think about, about reparations. They know, they don't need to be convinced. So if politics to you is simply about getting applause from people who already agree with you, so collectively you can demonize people who don't agree with you, where's, where's the activism in that? So I knew that my job that day, and once again, this goes back to the atonement for yourself. Dear God, take away from me my judgment uh, that those white people who are against reparations are just greedy bastards. My work, your atonement. And I spoke that day, and that had been my prayer the whole day. Dear God, may I reach some people who don't already agree Take away from me any thoughts that will keep me from being able to reach. And, and I was telling Kristen and the others, I said it was one of the, it was a day I'll never forget because there's this white man. One of the images I used was the north to the south because a lot of black white people say, I didn't slave, enslave people. I didn't enslave people. I always say there's a difference between blame and responsibility. You have a karmic debt. Until the karmic debt is paid, it's just handed down to your children. So the image I used that day was when a company takes over another company, how you assume it's, it's assets, but you also assume it's debts. And I walked off the pulpit that day, and there was a man about right there, and he was the quintessential successful white businessman who thought my liberal politics were great and would actually say horrible. It was actually a man at that church, I remember his saying, you need, we, we have a tradition of racial prejudice in this community, and you should respect that. <laughs> and uh, you know, I would say, look how the church has grown. Yeah, but look who's here. I mean, that's how racist this place was. And I walked off the pulpit that day, and this man's about right there. He comes over to me. He says, "Go to your class." And that can only, the, uh, Martin Luther King said, you have no morally persuasive power with people who can feel your underlying contempt. That's nonviolence. If I have violence in my heart by judging you for being a racist, and also the Course in Miracles says people speak to you on the level that you speak from. Uh, no, no, I'm sorry, people hear you on the level you speak from. Everybody subconsciously knows everything. If I have contempt for your position, 
I have no morally persuasive power with you. It has nothing to do with what I say. You can feel it, even if you don't know it. So that's why Gandhi and Martin Luther King, why the whole notion of, of, of nonviolence, as Gandhi said, the end is inherent in the means. Angry people will not bring peace to the earth. I was an angry peace protester. So in order to be real practitioners of nonviolence, we have to get rid of the guns in our own head. And that's why Martin Luther King said, I'm so grateful God didn't say I have to like my enemies. He just said I have to love them. <laughs> you know. So that's where this whole idea of the intersection of spirituality and politics comes in. I hope that uh, I will take any more questions if you have them, but uh, I don't know. Uh, does anybody else? Yes, sir. And did that answer yours, ma'am? Thank you. First, I have to say thank you for being here. Thank uh, you. Thank you for being here and having my me. My heart boils with joy. Thank <laughs> you. Thank you. <laughs> I'm first-generation American. My family's from Nigeria, and uh, I'm really excited to be here and have education. I'm just very grateful. I, I'm at first-hand experience with struggle. Um, you had a quote that talked about the revolution is ultimately going to be a personal revolution. Starts as a personal, Starts as a personal revolution. And yeah. in, in my study about communication with myself and just communication with others, um, I found that um, feeling speaks more clear than words. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious to know, in terms of bringing people together, I could be in a concert, and people could be from different cultures. Mm -hmm. And because of the music, That's right. we could become <coughs> like brothers. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious to understand, and I can see what Michael Jackson has done across the globe, mm -hmm. just with certain songs. Mm -hmm. I'm curious to know the combination of music and mm -hmm. how music brings the feeling mm -hmm. that unites people, that mm -hmm. we, oh, I know, and you look at someone and say, I feel you, but I don't know how to communicate, but mm -hmm. I understand where you're coming from. Mm -hmm. How do we link that into the practical sense of bringing forth the change that we're talking about? Well, first of all, music was born, and, and drama was born in the ancient temples. That's what they were originally religious rituals. Um, look at gospel music. Uh, look at the choir at a Jewish synagogue. Look at many, uh, uh, it's funny, speaking of that and the racial thing, I, uh, many years ago, uh, was in Paris, France, and saw an ad for a gospel concert. And I was so interested in what a gospel concert would be like in Paris. <laughs> and I went, and something was missing. I couldn't, it was like nice, but it just didn't have that thing that you get in Detroit or someplace. And I realized why, because the memory of slavery was not in their cells. This was born out of, this was born out of, Gospel music is born out of the suffering of, and, and you look even in, in, in white music, uh, in the early, the generations of the great um, American musical, other than Cole Porter, they were children of Jewish, in, uh, Jewish uh, immigrants, many of whom did not speak English, and so a lot of that music is cantorial. Oh, baby, 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 if you listen to the cantorial, the music in, Jew in Jewish synagogues. So this came out of, you know, both for Christians, for Jews, for so much, it, it all these, these came out of the cellular memory of the suffering and the cries to God, okay? 
My, when I was in my 20s, I went to a reggae concert by a group was called Third World. And that was one of the first times I had the experience that you just mentioned, and I think that in that moment was where I decided what I wanted to do with my life. That's a priestly function. That's what the priest does. The priestly function is the tuning fork. It's like a petri dish when women who have worked together and then they start having their menstrual periods at the same time. The priestly function is that which brings all hearts into resonance, and that's what social movements are. Does that make sense? Now, you might be a priest as an educator, you might be a priest as a psychotherapist, you might be a priest as a politician, you might be a priest, but it's this priestly element that we need now holding this space. Does that make sense? And music, and when I, I have to tell you, when I was the spiritual leader at a, at a Unity Church in Michigan, and people in California and New York would go, why are you still there? <laughs> I would say, if you haven't been there on a Sunday morning, I can't, I, I can't tell you. Because if you take that gospel music, which they don't lay down anywhere like they lay down in Detroit, and you mix that with an enlightened spiritual message, <laughs> now, I want to say something else, if I may, that I forgot to say before. And that is about the power of conviction. And this gets down into this vertical thing. The Course in Miracles says, miracles arise from conviction. Remember what I said, don't, dumb don't compromise with your conviction to get more people to agree with you. There's more power in conviction. I can't even imagine, and I'm sure you can't either, a kind of, sort of, sometimes, casually, when it's convenient, committed terrorist. <laughs> These people are serious. And they have proven to us in horrifying ways, they will do whatever it takes. And every time there's a terrorist act, and our president or some prime minister or somebody somewhere says that this cowardly act will not be tolerated. I always tilt my head, because I'm thinking heinous, evil. I'll go with a lot of words. I'm not sure I can go with cowardly, right? The truth of the matter is hatred has a perverse kind of courage. Now, you have far more people on this planet who love than hate. Far more people who, who have decent, just to just decent people, than people who really are willing to destroy to get what they want. So why is it that hatred and domination and fear and greed are literally holding the human race hostage right now? From a metaphysical perspective, it's because those who hate, hate with greater conviction than is now demonstrated by those of us who love. So those of us who love, how many of us would have to say, I know I would have to say, I'm sometimes kind of sort of, you know, when it's convenient, committed to love. Martin Luther, used to, uh, Martin Luther King used to talk about uh, eros, obviously, sexual love, that's not going to save the planet. But then he talked about the difference between philia and agape. Philia is love for the people who think like you. That's pretty easy. Agape love is is the love that will save the world, even for those who don't. And so when somebody said, what will it take to change America, is we need to step up on our conviction, step it up. And what I have seen in my career, I've seen a lot of good things happen. There is a mainstreaming of, of, the, of the sort of enlightenment impulse, and there is an understanding, the very fact that Bernie Sanders could be getting the kind of crowds he is, there is now this, a, a lot of people are realizing that we have given over the functioning of our government, to handmade into corporate oligarchy, blah, blah, blah. I mean, we really have it. It's simply now what I see in people. I mean, let's say someone being here tonight, 
People used, in, in my own career, people used to come hear me say things they didn't already know. T those days are over. We've all read the same books. We've all listened to the same tapes. The very fact that you're where you are, you, you, by definition, this isn't that you're coming to something like this to hear something new. We are rather coming to nights like tonight to access more deeply the things which by now all of us already know. So we, uh, the era of data collection is over. So there was an era of data collection. Now it's about, okay, you know it. Now how deep you're going to stand on that? How willing you're going to go to to effectuate that? So now what we need is, you know, if you, you can just gather data, and it stays in uh, the Course of Miracles says enlightenment begins as an abstraction, and then it takes a journey without distance from the head to the heart. So now, and I know those of you at Harvard deal with this in your own minds, because when you leave here, you gotta take it to the streets, whatever that means in your life. And I'm sure you have plenty of conversation about what is the role while you're here, et cetera. Because if we all just know, but we don't turn it into courage and bravery and conviction, and for women, this is a big deal. Let me just conclude with this little plea to women, not plea to women, but I think it bears noting. In every advanced mammalian species that survives and thrives, a common anthropological characteristic is the fierce behavior of the adult, of that the adult female of the species when she senses a threat to her cubs. You see this in the lions and the tigers, you see it in the bears. We don't look at the fierce bear, you know, it's like you're, you go to Montana or someplace and you're gonna go uh, camping in the wilderness and they say about the black bears, you know, they won't mess with you, just don't get near their babies because that's part of nature. Don't mess with the babies or I'll kill you, right? And we don't say about that adult bear, she's strident, I think, or she's got anger issues, she clearly needs to work out, you know? <laughs> Maybe some Lexapro would help. Um, <clears throat> no, the, but we're living at a time when the, given the fact that 14,000 children on this earth starve every day. The numbers are getting better, by the way. That's actually with things getting better, but still, it, it's, it's almost inconceivable. 14,000 children every day, one every four seconds. So how many children have starved on this planet since we began talking here tonight? The collective behavioral pattern of the adult female, and then you move into the fact that we are adult females in the advanced democratic world where we have power. Our collective behavior and relative complacency bespeaks a species without conscious intention of survival. And there's nothing holy about complacency. And there's nothing unholy about yelling fire if in fact the house is burning down. So living a meaningful life is not a popularity contest. And at a place like Harvard, you will find yourself or at a lecture or something, you know, I say to people at my lectures all the time, here this stuff sounds like common sense. Here, you're surrounded by people who think like you do, which is important, by the way, because The Course in Miracles says an idea grows stronger when it is shared. But the point is that these experiences where you're with other people who see it the way you do, it's a battery charge. But I say this in my lectures all the time. The real work is what happens when we leave here. And the alchemy by which you take all that you've learned and then surrender it to love, to use for love's purposes. Um, there's a difference between magic and miracles. Magic is when you've realized the power of the mind and you basically make metaphysical principle your errand boy so that you can have whatever you want and you call that spiritual. 
that's just uh, this faux spirituality, which is narcissism with the newest mask, right? Miracles is where you say to God, where you say to the universe, where you say to love, use me. Now, the Course in Miracles says God has an answer to every problem the moment the problem occurs. How does that, what would that mean in relation to the World Trade Center bombings? It means from a spiritual perspective that the moment those, the Trade Center was hit, there was etched onto your heart how you could help, onto your heart how you could help, how your heart how you could help. It's the immune system. What's happened on this planet <clears throat> is just like in the body, every cell is assigned and knows where to go, and it's imbued with a natural intelligence, and it makes brains form and lungs form and a liver form and a digestive tract form, and even while you're all sitting here, those cells continue to work, and they arise and they collaborate with other cells to serve the healthy functioning of the organ so that your heart has continued to beat while you've been here and our lungs have continued to breathe and so forth. Now, for reasons that we do not fully understand, Sometimes a cell disconnects from its nat natural intelligence and it goes insane. And instead of collaborating with other cells to serve the healthy functioning of the organ, decides it wants to just go do what it wants to do and do its own thing. What do we call that? Cancer. It is a malignancy. It is a malignancy in the body and it is also a malignancy in consciousness. And that is what has happened to the human race. We have been infected by a malignant consciousness. Now, the Course in Miracles says that this occurred millions of years ago in time as we know it. And that malignancy is the thought that it's all about me. And unfortunately, too much of our society has developed with a celebration. We have taken the legitimate concept of rugged individualism and turned it into justification for just pure selfishness. And that is the malignancy. But in the body, there is something called the immune system. And a civilization would not have developed and the body would not have developed without an internal dynamism by which it's able to take a hit. And there is a psychic immune system. That's what grief is, but also in civilization. So what's happening now, we need to surrender ourselves to be used as cells in the immune system. And when you think of yourself that way, use me, assign me. Use me is that thing in Isaiah, use me, God send me. And that's, I believe, where we are. And from A Course in Miracles perspective, it says there is no order of difficulty in miracles. Clearly, we're at the 11th hour. But it is not midnight yet. <laughs> and not only is it not midnight yet, but we have a presidential election. We have congressional elections. We have Senate races. We have, uh, and, and all of that, obviously, is just on the, uh, on the uh, allopathic level. That's just external. I don't think politics is the salvation of the world. I think spirituality is the salvation of the world, but if we are not careful, the politics will destroy things before we have an opportunity for spirit to save things. It's like the difference between al uh, Ayurvedic medicine and allopathic medicine. I heard Deepak Chopra say, if I want to cultivate and maintain my health, I go allopathic. But if I've been in a major car accident, please get me to a Western hospital emergency room as soon as possible. Right now we have a bleeding aorta. So it's a whole systems breakdown, needs a whole systems response. We have to work on clarifying our hearts, clarifying our consciousness, and clarifying our political activism. Does that make sense? And does that sit home? Thank you. So let's say a prayer. Thank you. Thank you so much. So the Course in Miracles says thank you. Prayer is the medium of miracles. The miracle is the shift in perspective and perception from fear to love, from the malignant consciousness to the service consciousness, from ambition to inspiration.
from sales to service, from unforgiveness to forgiveness, from blame to blessing, from judgment to non-judgment. And all of us have what the Course in Miracles calls a highly individualized curriculum. Each and every day of your life, there's somebody <laughs> every hour, who am I judging that I could let go? Who am I focusing on your guilt when I could just lighten up and not think about your mistake right now, not think about what you did two weeks ago, but think about the nice things you're trying to do now. Maybe I could consider the fact that I've done worse in my life. Sometimes the practice for me is I'll see young women who behave really irresponsibly with men or, or sexually or acting out or something, and I'm like so judgmental, and then I laugh out loud when I think of who I was when I was their age. So, you know, almost anything we blame other people for if you just take a moment to think about yourself. This is a constant practice all day, every day. The more we practice this within ourselves, the more we can be used because to teach is to demonstrate. In the Gospel of Thomas, Jesus says to the disciples, go out into the countryside and teach the gospel. He did not mean go out into the countryside and hit other people over the head with our book. <laughs> to teach means to demonstrate. You only teach by demonstrating, and the gospel is love, which means he was just saying to them, go out into the world and be love. The gospel, the disciples said to Jesus, what do you mean just go out into the countryside? What will we say? And his response to them was, I'll tell you when you get there the small, still voice. The Course in Miracles says every morning we are to wake up and say, where would you have me go? What would you have me do? What would you have me say and to home? So I'd like to conclude with a final prayer. But before I do that, and also I want to make sure that you know, and to you, Kristen, thank you, and Anne-Marie, thank you, and to all of you who have been so kind. Uh, I am deeply honored to be here, quite seriously, and, uh, and honored that you would come. And I would just like to leave you with my conviction um, Course in Miracles says the greatest power in the universe is an agreement between two people. So I hope at least one of you will agree with me. <laughs> um, the Course says all of us are special and none of us are special. The Course says all of us have unlimited potential to be used in the healing of the world. And I, I believe this. I don't just believe it based in theory. I believe it in my experience. Hope is more than a moral imperative. Hope is reasonable because we do have the honor and the privilege of being citizens of the most powerful nation on the earth who, when it gets it right and has gotten it right, has been a blessing on this planet. And when we have gotten it wrong, and when we do get it wrong, it can be a real scourge on this planet. And I think if we take that very, very seriously, we not only find meaning in our lives, but we become miracle workers, and we become agents of real change and real transformation. And when we look at other generations of Americans before us who did work what at their time in history would have been deemed a miracle, everything from ending slavery to giving women suffrage, uh, it's been done, why not us? And so if we can just take that thought and wherever that sits and lands in your heart and give ourselves uh, to that, devote ourselves and stand on the conviction that we too shall be used. You're not the water, you're the faucet. Do you think of the universe as like a house wired with electricity? God is the electricity. It doesn't matter the form of the lamp. It doesn't matter the design of the lamp. It doesn't matter the color of the lamp. What matters is that the lamp get plugged in. And then the light flows through it. And with every prayer, we plug in. With every act of forgiveness, we plug in. With every act of kindness, we plug in. With every act of mercy, we plug in. With every apology, we plug in. With every act of atonement, we plug in. With every effort to be charitable and kind, we plug in. So let's pray and then kick ass.
Dear God, we thank you. We thank you for all of the roads and the paths that have led us to this moment. We thank you for the fact that we can be here. We take this moment to even consider how fortunate we are to live in a place where we can talk about God and politics however we wish. And we think of those who cannot. And we think of those whose suffering is so much greater than ours. And we place our suffering in your hands, dear God, and we place theirs as well. And we ask you, dear God, to use us. We surrender to you all that we have and all that we are. We surrender to you our debts and we surrender to you our resources. We surrender to you our talents and our lack thereof, our abilities and our lack thereof, our intelligence and our lack thereof. We surrender to you our past, we surrender to you our future, we surrender to you our present. We open our minds and hearts and pray that your spirit be upon us as never before. Reach, dear God, into the deepest regions of every thought and feeling that we have. Reorder our thoughts. Deliver us from the chaos of the world to the infinite peace, harmony, and order of your spirit. And now may we go forth in confidence and peace, for you are led. There are angels to your left and there are angels to your right. <clears throat> there are angels in front of you and angels behind you. There are angels above you and angels below. God himself has paved the path of light by which you shall exit every form of darkness and by which through the light that then fills you, you shall deliver light into all you meet and all you even think of. To God who makes this possible, to God who makes this real, we give our thanks, our gratitude, and we look with awe upon the miracles he has worked and is working now. Dear God, please bless our precious world. Please heal our precious planet and use us all. May we be of use. And so it is, together, we all say, amen. God bless you, everybody. Go do it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you.